Welcome to Scaling Alberta Businesses, Innovate MRU's podcast that focuses on the startup and scale-up stories of Alberta-born companies. I'm Ray DePaul, the Director of the Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Mount Royal University. On this episode, I'm honoured to be speaking with Scott Gravel. Scott is the co-founder and CEO of Atabotics, the world's first 3D robotics supply chain system for modern commerce. If you haven't heard about Scott or Atabotics, you're in for a real treat. So let's start. Uh, everybody thinks startups start when they get created, but they start way before that. So can you tell me a bit about yourself, your journey that led up to Atabotics? The biggest piece, I think, as a takeaway for me has been the whole idea about managing fear. Fear comes in lots of different ways. Self-doubt stops us from things. Now, in some ways, you know, we might all grow up fearful. Fearful that we're not good enough, we're not smart enough. Who do you think you are? We can't do that. Fear that if we try, we'll fail. Fear if we do anything different, there can always be a negative side effect to that. So I grew up blue collar. No one really had any expectations of me. You know, I would graduate high school, go get a job, make my way in the world. And um, those were my expectations of me. What changed for me was when I started finding ways, (laughs) this is going to sound weird, but self-medicate anxiety. And I didn't want to take medication. I found the most effective thing for me was to always be learning something new. And um, graduated high school with a 61 average. Very unimpressive (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) But early 30s, wanted to find a way to quiet my brain. So I explored lots of things to do that. Hang gliding, glass blowing, golf. Is it true that you were a Canadian hang gliding champion? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I competed competed internationally uh, for the, the national team. That was one of the most effective ways to quiet my brain. And the reason being is athletes talk about getting into the zone. And that might be for a minute or two. When you put a human brain in a non-human environment, you know, we walk on the ground, we drive on the ground, we exist in this one horizontal plane. Uh, Sure, we build buildings, but it's just a collection of horizontal planes. We're we're two-dimensional. We have no predators from the sky, so we don't even look up. You put us in the air, and if you try to process all of that in a linear fashion, uh, you're done, your head will explode and you'll just land. You have to stop thinking, consciously thinking. Hmm. And that environment and that stimulation, and it's about feeling and sensing and making, I guess you could say, gut decisions, but it's really more about allowing your brain to subconsciously process information and trust those decisions. But you shut off your thinking, and for sometimes up to seven hours. Hmm. For me, it was some of the best therapy I ever did for a very, very busy mind. But I understood the science and the math, and there's a lot of science and math, believe it or not. I understood consciously what was happening, but I wasn't processing consciously. That led me to, you know, accelerate rather quickly in hang gliding comparatively. And it was the biggest break I had. Now, not the cheapest hobby in the world. 
uh, international travel, competition class hang gliders, lots of time off. Um, so needless to say, when I got divorced 13 years ago, we could say hang gliding might have slowed down a little bit. But what did you take out of that? Like clearly this is a... That I needed to do something different okay. for my head. So I would always give myself projects, something to chew on. You know, I've jokingly said that my, my brain is kind of like a border collie. Hmm. It's amazing if you keep it stimulated, but it'll chew the baseboards off the house if it gets bored. So giving my head something to crunch on, crunch on problems to solve, research to do. So, you know, I've researched uh, new concepts for electric motors, got ideas for what an electric uh, propulsion unit would be for electric aviation. Um, combining my past jobs in, in architecture and automation to create energy and food self-sufficient way of living. More, more Star Trek, less Little House on the Prairie. And those are the kind of things I was always working on, problems. You know, plus I was, you know, working, supporting my daughter. Then, uh, then this idea came up. I had had a previous company building longboard skateboards that ultimately had failed. Uh, after five years, we shuttered it, sold off the assets, paid back the creditors. So I walked away from that with a great education in what worked and what didn't work when mm -hmm. it comes to starting a business. Thankfully, no debt, but starting from scratch. Um, and, so, and what are the parallels? You know, some might say, you know, longboard company has nothing to do with a robotics company. What, what, what did you take out of that experience that you apply? You can't plan enough. The people you pick to go on your journey with you are a way bigger factor of success than you could imagine. The skateboard company, I just thought I could do something better. In some ways I did, in some ways I didn't when mm -hmm. it comes to the boards. Didn't do enough research to understand the competitive landscape, sales cycles, target markets. And granted, we, we were successful in, in a lot of metrics. You know, we had distribution on every continent in North America, and mm. we signed a deal to sell um, white label boards through SportCheck. And um, so it wasn't just a hobby. We got up to 11 employees. Nice. And, but it's hard work. The biggest difference, though, was I thought I needed to bring on somebody that I believed understood business. And there's lots of people out there, and I've encountered a lot even through this project, that think they, they know to tell you what you should do, if that makes sense. Here's mm -hmm. what you should do. Here's what you should do. Lots of advice. You need to surround yourself with people that actually can deliver and not just tell you what you should be doing. You need to surround yourself, and, and I did early on with people I described as relentlessly capable in, in antibiotics, whereas the first business I brought on an MBA with a background in management consulting. <laughs> can I guess where that led? <laughs> Well, ultimately, you know, the, the longboard company failed. And um, the important part in that, too, is people that can contribute something, but also people that really, really believe in what you're doing. If you spend all of your time trying to convince the people that should be helping you, you have the wrong people. Hmm. If you can't convince good people to help you, you probably have the wrong idea. So after jumping into the first business and slogging away at it for five years and ultimately closing it down, you know, I spent a year grieving it. It gave me an opportunity to move out of what historically I was in was, you know, manufacturing and now more into automation consulting. That led to the problem. When I talk now, the best ideas in the world, the coolest technology in the world that doesn't actually fix a problem is just neat. It's not a business. 
It's a science project. <laughs> sure, sure. There's lots of amazing technology companies out there that are trying to find something to do with their technology. Yeah. There's a bunch of amazing products that, you, you know, you read the stories of people that invested their life savings in their entire life trying to bring the market, but nobody wants it but yeah. them. So I saw a problem when I was doing some automation consulting, but I also saw a validated business opportunity, and that had nothing to do with me. And at that time, it wasn't going to be my business. I was just looking something for my brain to chew on. Right. And I discovered this when I phoned a robotics company wanting to use their technology for a buffer and collating system at the end of a manufacturing line. Um, I didn't have enough reach with the robot arm I wanted to use to put all the parts away. Okay. And we did batch manufacturing. The parts had to be manufactured in batches and then sorted by customer. And that was a manual process that led to damage and time. And uh, so I was going to automate that. So I either had a choice. I had to put the, the robot on another axis, another rail, to give it more reach to, to more storage positions, or once I filled up a shelf, move it. So I'd originally designed um, an automation system based off of the puzzles we had as children. Um, maybe the younger audience might not have a <laughs> relative kind of reference to this, but you know, is a, a four by four grid that had one missing tile and you had to slide it around in sequence to complete the picture. Yep. You, you know what I'm talking I, about. I can't remember the name of it, yeah, but I remember yeah. it. Yep. But the idea is there was only one empty space in, in 16 positions and this was going to be high density storage. So in doing my research, I found a robotics company that had robots that move shelves. So rather than reinvent the wheel, I just reached out going, hey, can we use this for this application? And I still owe the receptionist of Kiva Systems some kind of commission check. <laughs> um, I phoned wanting to inquire about the technology, and she said, thank you, but we're no longer accepting inquiries and hung up on me. Now, I thought that was a bizarre response for a business, but I'd never worked in supply chain and never worked in supply chain automation. And I did a little bit of research and discovered that Amazon had just paid over three quarters of a billion dollars for these little robots that move shells. And I said, huh, that's interesting. So in that moment, Amazon's acquisition of Kiva was a validation that instead of people going to where the goods are stored, have robots bring the goods to the people. Bit a big disruptive idea, originally formulated by Mick Mounts and a couple uh, professors from MIT. That being validated and now being removed from the market, because they were the most significant player in the market at that point, in an emerging kind of technology field, I asked who was in a position to take advantage of what is now a validated business opportunity. So I started doing a bunch of competitive analysis and market research in the same way I would do research for manufacturing equipment to suggest to my clients. Mm -hmm. You know, not quite a spreadsheet, but pretty close. Yep. And what I saw doing all my research, and this was just out of curiosity, you gotta remember that. This is just, give me something new to learn. So you still haven't had the, this is my next one. No, no, hell no, no. It was, um, this is educate myself on the industry. Yep. Uh, educate myself on the technology. I found the technology fascinating. But what I saw is almost every automated system was a derivative of a human-centric environment. Going back to hang gliding, human beings are two-dimensional. So we need rows and aisles to access all of our goods. And almost every automation, automated system that I looked at um, used rows and aisles. You know, we can use a forklift to give us some vertical, but you still need rows and aisles to access it. So I had watched a TED talk by the original founder of Kiva, uh, Mick Mounts, who talked about the formation of Kiva. And he was, he was doing it, trying to figure out how he could have succeeded at a, a startup that's failed out of the valley. Webvan, hmm. the first grocery e-com delivery company. Yep. 
that raised massive capital, had great leadership, but it cost $3.50 to put a 70-cent can of beans in a bag at that time. So the economics led to one of the biggest Silicon Valley flameouts. Mm-hmm. Going back to that problem statement, <laughs> uh, grocery com was way too emerging. Client base was small. The CapEx required. The automation didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So he was trying to understand what would have made that successful, like in a postmortem, and asked the question in a thought experiment, let's remove, remove some constraints. Let's get rid of the cost of real estate. Let's get rid of the cost of labor. How would you do this? Right. Um, and that led to them theorizing that you would just give the goods to somebody and have them wait until you needed it, then they just come put it in a box. But the idea is the goods came to the box and then worked with some MIT professors to figure out a robotics platform that allowed robots to bring the shelf mm-hmm. to the person. And that led to kind of a, a revolution in supply chain. So looking at all the other players, I saw that these were still automated examples of human-centric environments. They're still human height shelves. They're still in rows and aisles. The shelves Mm -hmm. moved instead of the people. But the difference I had is looking at this, seeing that they were human-centric environments, I asked myself in a thought experiment, conscious thought experiment, what would be ideal for a robot and not for a person? No ideas. Two weeks, three weeks, nothing. Frustrated. Trying to research trying to find the answer out there in, in, in the interwebs. You know, I'm sure someone had thought of this and nothing. But then I was, you know, flipping through YouTube or Discovery Channel or Planet Earth or something, I can't remember. And I saw a researcher who was researching the, the structure of leaf cutter ant colonies in the jungle. And uh, he vaporized an entire leaf cutter ant colony by pouring molten aluminum into the colony. Um, but when it solidified, he excavated it to see the internal structure of the colony. And there was the aha moment. Ants, from a biomass point of view, exist on this planet in greater abundance than human beings. But we barely know they're here because they're an incredible user of space. And they distribute themselves so evenly through an ecosystem not to overwhelm it. But think about that. Add up the seven point whatever billion people on this planet or whatever it is now. And then add up all the ants and hope we don't upset them. Uh, The creepier part, by the way, termites, two and a half times as many as ants. But seeing that ants access their goods, or leafcutter ants access their goods vertically, changed the kind of whole paradigm in thinking about storage. Instead of needing a plane on the floor to access goods horizontally and arranging things in rows and aisles, we can now arrange things in a very, very different storage matrix. And it led to massive increases in storage density and massive decreases in travel to get to that stuff. Mm -hmm. But this wasn't an environment for people. But when I was doing the math, it was less than 6% of the space from a manual warehouse. So think about a grocery store just in the deli. The whole grocery store just in the deli was kind of the the idea there. Then I figured someone must have thought of this. I spent a couple months looking through the IP. It doesn't make a lot of sense to spend a lot of time on an idea that someone else has rights to. But it's also fascinating what I learned looking through the IP. You know, Google Patton was my friend for for a long time. No one had thought of this, and that surprised me. So I guess you could say I spent the first two years looking for reasons not to do this because I was scared. I was sure someone had thought of this. No one had. I was sure that although the storage matrix was interesting, I couldn't find a way to interact with it in a meaningful way. And so I focused on figuring out the logic. How would you move around through the storage? Like, what would the sequence be? How would stuff be put away? How would stuff be pulled? How would stuff get out? How would stuff get in? How would things move around? Um, And what's happening during while you're doing all this? I love that notion, spending two years looking for a reason not to do it. 
is is a level of confidence raising? Is mm, the risk reducing? No, no. Uh, getting increasingly afraid. Okay. If you sell skateboards, you sell four or five of them to a skateboard shop that is most likely a 25-year-old ex-skateboarder or current skateboarder whose parents lent them some money to open a shop. Yep. That's the bulk of that customer base. Not intimidating to deal with generally. Mm-hmm. When you sell complete warehouse automation solutions, the contracts are in the tens of millions of dollars. You're dealing with senior executives at Fortune 500 companies. I could make a living selling skateboards to 25-year-olds. How the hell did I think I could do this? But it's interesting because although very, very afraid, I was absolutely positive I would find a reason not to do this because I wouldn't let being afraid be the reason. Mm. So I went looking for the reason that I was sure to find. It was going to be there somewhere. Someone already thought of it. Wouldn't work. People wouldn't buy it. Um, I would never get a sales channel. The market really didn't need it. Well, yeah. here we are. But what I can say, going back to the, the skateboard company as a comparison, you can't plan enough. So... I researched everything I could, not only about the technology and the industry, its viability. I designed a robot that I knew would work before I ever built it, but I knew it would work because of the research I'd done and my background in making things and and dealing with computer-controlled equipment and so on and so forth, background in manufacturing. I knew it would work. So, okay. I got really granular on the planning, but I also read... Uh, I jokingly say this, but it's not really a joke. I I read every book about startups, and I often say none of them say it would happen like this. So the whole idea of a technology startup, for some cases, is people just want a startup, and they'll get some seed of an idea and convince someone to give them money, and then they'll spend two or three years doing what I did before I started the company. Pivot, research, product market fit, you know, IP validation. Those end up being problems most startups have to overcome after becoming a startup. Right. I did all of that work on my couch evenings and weekends um, before doing this. Because it doesn't cost that much money to do that. It costs time. time. It takes time. But it takes time when you're a funded startup too. Right. So someone gave me some kind of insight. It was actually Mark Laurie, who is now the CEO of Walmart.com. Very successful, modern commerce entrepreneur, diapers.com, quidzy, jet.com, now Walmart. He said, startups only fail when they can't raise any more money. So given that investor patience and confidence is finite, not infinite, you build confidence by executing successfully on a plan. You build doubt by wandering around looking like you don't really know what you're doing next. This is something I learned after the fact. But because I spent so much time looking for reasons not to do this and thankfully validating all of these ideas in the process, when we were ready to go, we were ready to go. And I quit my job in December 15th, started full-time doing dog and pony shows to angel groups, pitching. You can't spend too much time learning to tell a story because at that point, they're investing in you and the story. Nothing else matters. So the question I get a lot from entrepreneurs is, when do I quit my day job? What did you see that gave you the confidence on December 15th? What year are we talking? 2015? I had, I had no funding yet. Okay. We didn't get funded till June 1st, 2016. Corporated the company December 2015, didn't get funded until June 1st. 
I'd lined up some consulting gigs. I could just pay my bills, okay. but I quit my 40-hour-a-week job, so I had the flexibility to pitch. Mm-hmm. When should you quit your job? Two schools of thought. Never until it, until your other business is making more money than the one you got. The other one is you often hear an entrepreneur as described as someone who jumps off a cliff with the confidence that they'll figure out to fly before they hit the bottom. That's what I did. Part of that decision-making process for me was 40, what was I, 43 years old. My divorce, my last company wiped out any savings I would have. Working a job would have meant ultimately a pretty bleak future for my retirement. So it was more like the idea had been validated so much and I'd been encouraged so much to go do this that I had to take the leap regardless of how afraid I was to go give this a shot. Part of that decision-making for me goes back to, uh, I might not live very long because I had my midlife crisis at 30, but I, um, 30 I decided to t- look at every major decision in my life as if I was on my deathbed looking backwards. Hmm. No one dies wishing they worked an extra Saturday. No one dies wishing they had a five series BMW instead of a three. Yeah. You wish you climbed that mountain, sang that song, wrote that book, loved more, was a better friend, partner, parent. Those are the things you you look back on. So I put myself on that position. Would I regret not giving this a try? And that answer was easy. Mm. So I swallowed fear, left my job, believing I could do this. I was going to figure out to fly before I hit the bottom. And the bottom got pretty close by June. Wanted to raise half a million dollars at a $4 million post-money valuation. Um, raised 300000 at a $250 million post-money valuation and started to build a robot. If you're inspired by Scott's startup story, wait until you hear how he is now scaling Atabotics into a global leader in the next episode of Innovate MRU's Scaling Alberta Businesses. This episode was produced by Joanne Horwood and Ben Goodman and the music provided by Broke for Free. I'm Ray DePaul. Thanks for listening.